far out, man. You have scanned your internet dial and landed on the Renegade Files podcast. Like and follow the show to make all your wildest psychedelic dreams come true. Lex Gordon here, broadcasting from the camouflaged and fortified compound of the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files episode number 7, the Laurel Canyon Conspiracy Theory. In this episode, we travel back in time to the psychedelic 60s. There was an impending war in Vietnam, unrest among the youth, a subculture of rebellion, marijuana, LSD, and free love, and a growing FM radio audience across the nation. All of these things culminated in the organic evolution of bands with a message. Songs of anti-war and peace filled the airwaves as musicians and poets, after years of dedication, touring, and long studio hours, finally got their due because the enlightened youth demanded it. Or is that really how it all happened? Is it possible that the musicians of Laurel Canyon in the 1960s and 70s were part of a greater plan to put a harmless voice on the counterculture while dressing the serious anti-war sentiments of respected academics in hippie clothing, long hair, and drug-addled ramblings? Could the 60s counterculture have been a contrived creation to repulse the conservative everyman in America and retain support for the conflicts in Vietnam? Tune in, turn on, and find out. Together, we'll look at all the facts, the connections, and the unlikely chains of events that created some of the most enduring songs and imagery our country has ever known, while at the same time laying the undeniable groundwork for what has come to be known as the Laurel Canyon Conspiracy Theory. 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 Conspiracy Theory. Conspiracy Theory. Conspiracy Theory. Before we get too deep into this case, I want to tell you two things of importance. First, naming this episode was a challenge because there's so much going on here. If I could use as many words as I want to name this episode, it would be called something like the 1960s Laurel Canyon music scene anti-war movement as a contrived government intelligence controlled operation PSYOP. Too long? In the end, I decided to go with the simple approach and call it what it is the Laurel Canyon Conspiracy Theory. This case is a pure conspiracy theory, and while that moniker has been hijacked by the mainstream media and used to vilify any free-thinking observations that cast doubt on their fiction, the term still has viable and absolute value in description if we can hear it in its literal form. In this case, we have a theory. Theories are useful. Gravity is a theory. Evolution is a theory. Dark matter is a theory. So as far as the Laurel Canyon music scene goes, there is a theory. That is, an idea or a collection of thoughts based on facts and evidence. That theory points to an orchestrated industry of performers, production companies, and distribution channels made up of multiple people working together to accomplish a goal, or conspiring. So we arrive at the title for this episode, The Laurel Canyon Conspiracy Theory. And that's it. The second note of importance here is that I fully realize that the music of Laurel Canyon in the 60s and 70s constitutes not only a significant body of great work and art, but that much of it holds an emotional and nostalgic place in people's hearts. I know because I'm one of them. 
As a writer, Jim Morrison is one of my heroes. Many songs from The Doors are among my favorites. Frank Zappa's critiques of television and corporate media have inspired much of how I look at things to this day. I also love Dennis Hopper, Jack Nicholson, and indie films like Easy Rider and Tulane Blacktop, and others made by the 1960s Laurel Canyon artists. So I'm not here to say that your favorite bands and songs are meaningless, or even that they didn't have an impact on the ways people viewed the wars in Southeast Asia at the time. But I will say, come with me with an open mind and I'll take you down a rabbit hole you may have never even considered. Anyone already familiar with the topic of this episode will no doubt know of the late, great Dave McGowan. His book entitled Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, Laurel Canyon, Covert Ops, and the Dark Heart of the Hippie Dream was the first published collection of the connections that make up this theory. And see what I mean about a title for this subject? But I want you to rest assured that this episode is more than just a rehashing of Dave's work. And if you've read his book and or listened to some of his interviews, you can think of this show as equal parts summarizing the story Dave tells and analyzing the subject with new discoveries and possibilities I have discovered in my own research. In short, we pick up where Dave left off and apply the Renegade Files brand of investigative reporting to a subject that is filled with intrigue, mystery, and all the glamour of psychedelic rock and roll. Dave McGowan first began to write about the odd connections within the Laurel Canyon music scene for his website on May 8, 2008. He wrote 22 posts, and they are long with the final post written on April 1st, 2014. It was this six-year collection of blog posts that became his book on Laurel Canyon. As the story goes, Dave had gone on vacation to get away from the world of dark government plots and reported sensationalism that is never what it seems after finishing his previous book. He had gone to a tropical island somewhere and he was on the beach reading a book about the Laurel Canyon music scene of the 1960s. This was an era he knew well, having been a kid at the time and growing up in California with fond longings for the bucolic image of a Laurel Canyon scene he was too young to experience. A string of houses on a wooded lane in a rustic canyon filled with caves, views of the valley, and music, incense, and free love filling the air. A magical place where anyone with a pure heart and a cool vibe could float from house to house and party with their music idols. The Doors, Buffalo Springfield, the Mamas and the Papas, and the Birds having barbecues and writing songs on the back porch and daydreaming in hammocks in the mild California air. As Dave relaxed on the beach and read a book about the music scene of that era, he was once again taken back to a simpler time and all was well. Until he came across one sentence that said something like, it's ironic that all of this free love and hippie anti-war music was being created in Laurel Canyon in the very shadow of a covert military installation run by the intelligence community. Dave never mentions the title or author of that book that I know of, but he says that the book skips over this provocative statement, then goes on about its business telling the stories of the bands and never mentioning this aside again. So, being the person that he was, his relaxing vacation was basically over. He started to look into this claim of a secret intelligence facility in Laurel Canyon and he discovered that it was true. What followed was his exhaustive research and the discovery of a completely new way to look at the 1960s Laurel Canyon music scene. Dave passed away in November of 2015, 
and I send his family sincere wishes for peace. I'd like to say thank you to Dave's daughter, Alyssa, who has done an excellent job moving all of Dave's original posts and content from his first-gen website to a new, very organized, and well-made site at centerforaninformedamerica.com, which I'll link to in the show notes. As for Dave, I hope he can finally rest now and get that vacation he so much deserves. And I hope he knows how much all of his work is appreciated. The mainstream story we all grew up on is that in the 60s, as tensions grew across America and a growing opposition to the wars in Southeast Asia mounted, musicians from around the country, and in fact the world, all arrived to live in and work from Laurel Canyon. They produced a long catalog of anti-war songs and became the voices of a generation intent upon stopping the wars and living in peace. The prevailing view of the entire 1960s Laurel Canyon community is one of an idyllic slice of time when girls with flowers in their hair could wander among a section of Los Angeles separated from the hustle and bustle of the city. This neighborhood was situated in the rolling hills of the canyon and populated with a collection of hippies and musicians who were crafting the folk songs and musical critiques of a world torn by war and at the same time singing of a better way of peace, love, and understanding. And these musicians were all driven by an idealism that became the hallmark of a generation, because the messages in the songs prevailed over the corporate music industry and grew from grassroots popularity and the organic evolution of those bands. Their musical statements and observations of warmongering and its ills then grew to be echoed by a like-minded youth who would champion the anti-war movement in America. Part of what makes this subject so complicated is that, in a large part, it can be argued that this is exactly what happened. Many of those that lived through this era feel that their thoughts, self-expression, and actions contributed to the end of the wars and to some extent to a more tolerant and liberated population. As much as any generation, the generation that came of age in the 60s was involved, serious about what they believed to be right, and brave enough to take actions that we still benefit from in many ways today. That position is not what the Laurel Canyon conspiracy theory calls into question. The basis of this theory is threefold. One, the overwhelming percentage of Laurel Canyon musicians, singer-songwriters, and band members came from military intelligence families. And these musicians all converged in Laurel Canyon at the same time for no apparent reason, and the vast majority of them went on to become the signed and promoted artists associated with the 60s counterculture. And all of this took place in the shadow of a secret military installation in Laurel Canyon where the U.S. intelligence apparatus produced propaganda films. 2. That the hippie movement did not originate in San Francisco and Haight-Ashbury as the common narrative would have us believe, but that it was the creation of a very interesting character named Vito Palikas and his wife Sue in L.A. who together ran a combination dance school pottery studio clothing store on Beverly Boulevard. And 3. There was an astounding number of both violent and suspicious deaths that befell a high percentage of those involved in the Laurel Canyon scene. Let's dive into each of these assertions, then see where we come out on the other end. Part 1. A Suspicious Immigration In March of 1965, the first uniformed American soldiers officially set foot in Vietnam. American military action in Vietnam had been hotly debated up to that point and would continue to be argued over and discussed for, well, until today. Many in the country at that time opposed sending troops to Vietnam. 
but there was a powerful contingent intent upon doing so. Not the least of which was the military-industrial complex that President Eisenhower had so directly warned us about just five years prior in 1961. I'll link to that speech in the show notes so you can hear it for yourself or read it again, because it's powerful and important. It's also worth a listen purely to remember that our presidents used to speak in direct, professional, genuine, informed, and honest ways. And a very convincing argument can be made that one of the last presidents to speak with such candor, President Kennedy, was killed by the very machine that escalated this war in Vietnam. Particularly when you understand that Kennedy was publicly and vocally intent upon ending the conflicts in Southeast Asia and bringing all of those troops home. But the military-industrial complex was only one group in a long list of enemies that the Kennedy White House had, and that spiderweb of cloak-and-dagger mystery is well more than enough for an entire series of Renegade Files episodes. And these situations are just the tip of the political iceberg that made up the American climate throughout the 1960s. So if an interconnected system of government, military intelligence, and private hardware manufacturers did conspire to change the very leadership of the country to accomplish their strategic political goals abroad, is it so hard to imagine that those same forces might, at the same time, proactively create a benign domestic controlled opposition to serve as a distraction from any and all legitimate criticism and actual financial barriers to the fulfillment of their war plans? In the early 1960s, there was no national music infrastructure in Los Angeles. If you were a striving or even an established musician, you would go to either Nashville, Memphis, or Detroit, Motown. Those were the recording and production homes of country, blues, jazz, R&B, and rock and roll. And at the time, in America, that was the whole show. But coinciding with the first troops being sent to Vietnam in the spring of 1965, a long list of musicians, singer-songwriters, and aspiring band frontmen began moving into Laurel Canyon, a rural and rugged valley hillside just outside of Los Angeles. What came, almost immediately, was a flood of new music. David Crosby and the Birds released their first album in the summer of 1965. The Mamas and the Papas album, If You Can Believe Your Eyes and Ears, came a few short months later in January 66. Then the debut album from Love in May of 66. Then Freak Out by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention in June 66. Then Buffalo Springfield's album with Stephen Stills and Neil Young in October of 66. Then The Doors' self-titled album debuted in January of 67. That's quite a burst of not only creativity and music creation, but of label signing, record production, and radio promotion and out of a location with no real pre-existing music industry. So let's meet some of the Laurel Canyon musicians and learn a bit more regarding where they came from that we may not have heard about on American Bandstand. And before we do, let me reiterate that I love a lot of these bands, and I'm not discounting any of their music or even the very positive impacts they had on generations of people. So here we go. Perhaps the most well-known military connection to the Laurel Canyon scene comes in the form of the Lizard King himself. Jim Morrison's father was Admiral George Stephen Morrison, who, in August of 1964, was in command of the ships that allegedly came under attack in what came to be known as the Tonkin Gulf Incident. 
This resulted in the obviously pre-drafted Tonkin Gulf Resolution, and escalated the conflict without a declaration of war by Congress to deliver 25,000 soldiers with an average age of 19 to the jungles of Vietnam. Frank Zappa, the de facto leader of Laurel Canyon in many ways, was the son of Francis Zappa, who was a chemical warfare specialist at Edgewood Arsenal. Edgewood Arsenal also comes up in any research done into the MK Ultra program. Frank Zappa's manager, Herb Cohen, was a former U.S. Marine who came to Laurel Canyon after a stint in the Congo at the same time that the CIA was removing Prime Minister Lumbamba from office, to put it politely. Zappa's soon-to-be manager was either helping the CIA get to Lumbamba, or supplying Lumbamba with arms in defiance of the CIA, and either way, that's not exactly the sort of prerequisite you would expect for someone wanting to become a rock and roll band manager. Frank Zappa's wife, Gail, came from a long line of career naval officers, including her father, who worked on classified nuclear weapons research. Zappa's wife, Gail, had been a secretary for the Office of Naval Research and Development before arriving in Laurel Canyon at the same time as one person she actually attended a naval kindergarten with, Jim Morrison. Frank Zappa is quoted as saying, the illusion of freedom will continue as long as it's profitable to continue the illusion. At that point where the illusion becomes too expensive to maintain, they will just take down the scenery, they will pull back the curtains, they will move the tables and chairs out of the way, and you will see the brick wall at the back of the theater. Papa John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas was the son of U.S. Marine Corps Captain Claude Phillips. John Phillips went so far in military school as to be accepted to the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis, although he never went. John Phillips was married to Susie Adams, a direct descendant of founding father and second American president John Adams. Susie's father was a covert military agent in the Air Force, and Susie Adams herself worked at the Pentagon. John Phillips' older sister also worked at the Pentagon for 30 years. Stephen Stills of both Buffalo Springfield and Crosby Stills and Nash was also the product of a career military family, and he spent his childhood at military installations in places like El Salvador, Costa Rica, and Panama, and his father worked in some capacity to champion democracy across Central America, although exactly what he did is unclear. David Crosby, whose full name is David Van Cortland Crosby, and who founded The Birds as well as the band with Stephen Stills, is the son of Annapolis graduate and World War II intelligence officer Major Floyd Crosby. David Crosby is also the product of two very powerful families, the Van Cortlands and the Van Rensselaers. David Crosby's family comprise a staggering array of U.S. Senators, U.S. Representatives, State Representatives, Governors, Mayors, Supreme Court Justices, Judges, Revolutionary War Generals, Civil War Generals, Members of the Continental Congress, and Signers of the Declaration of Independence. Included in this impressive lineage is David Crosby's direct descent from both Alexander Hamilton and John Jay, both founding fathers and authors of the Federalist Papers. All three members of the band America, Gary Beckley, Dan Peake, and Dewey Bunnell, were from military intelligence families. America is one of my favorite bands, by the way, and the source of one of the most beautiful and harmonic collective voices in the world. Beckley's father was the commander of the West Rooslip Air Force Base near London, and the other two members of the band had fathers serving under Beckley on that base, which is where the guys in the band met. Graham Parsons, who played with the Birds and formed the Flying Burrito Brothers, was the son of Major Cecil Connor, a decorated bomber pilot who flew over 50 combat missions. 
Graham Parsons' mother's family was one of the wealthiest families in Florida, and they owned as much as one-third of all the citrus groves in Florida at one time. And these musicians and their bands all moved to Laurel Canyon within months of each other, all started bands that very quickly were signed and promoted as the voices of the counterculture anti-war movements, and they all started to play in a string of nightclubs and bars that sprung up along the Sunset Strip in West Hollywood. Another aspect to this scene was the group of young actors and actresses known as the Young Turks, which included the likes of Dennis Hopper, Sharon Tate, Peter and Jane Fonda, Bruce Dern, and others. Many of these actors also moved to Laurel Canyon. These actors were widely publicized as frequenting the Sunset Strip venues where the emerging folk rock heroes were playing every weekend night. This publicity drew large crowds to fill the clubs, as many hoped to rub elbows with the popular young movie stars of the day. So who were they? Bruce Dern's godparents were Eleanor Roosevelt and Adlai Stevenson, and his uncle was a Skull and Bones Society member who worked for the Roosevelt administration. Peter and Jane Fonda's father, Henry Fonda, was a decorated U.S. Navy intelligence officer in World War II and was once married to a descendant of the Rothschilds. Dennis Hopper's father was an intelligence operative with the OSS, even though he is described as a farmer in some Hopper biographies. Sharon Tate's father was Lieutenant Colonel Paul Tate, a career U.S. Army intelligence officer. And these were the people who moved to Laurel Canyon at the same time as all of the Laurel Canyon musicians and used their TV and movie fame to publicize these bands playing in the clubs and draw crowds to hear them. And speaking of TVs and movies, remember that covert military facility Dave McGowan learned about that was situated right in the middle of all of this at the same time? Let's peek into that, because it definitely adds some depth to the theory that this scene was something more than an organic evolution of wandering musicians who just happened to all move to the same neighborhood at the same time to protest a war that their very families were simultaneously creating. So, as Dave found out, Lookout Mountain Laboratory was built in 1941 in what would become the Laurel Canyon neighborhood. The facility occupies two and a half secluded wooded acres on what is now Wonderland Park Avenue. Lookout Mountain was hidden from view and surrounded by an electric fence. By 1947, Lookout Mountain was home to what was, at the time, the world's only fully self-contained film studio. It had 100,000 square feet of floor space, studios that included sound stages, screening rooms, film processing labs, editing bays, an animation department, 17 climate-controlled film vaults, underground parking, a helicopter pad, and a bomb shelter. Fancy digs. As a side note, actor and musician Jared Leto recently bought the Lookout Mountain property, presumably to remodel it into a private home. According to the authorities, the official purpose of Lookout Mountain was to process film footage from the atomic bomb tests, which would require a dark room? Beyond military and intelligence officials, some of those we know who had passes to work at the Lookout Mountain laboratory were Jimmy Stewart, Marilyn Monroe, John Ford, Howard Hawks, Ronald Reagan, Bing Crosby, and Walt Disney. None of these people, as far as we know, ever spoke about anything they did for or at the Lookout Mountain Studios. In addition to these stars, Lookout Mountain employed 250 producers, directors, techs, animators, etc., and all of them had top security clearances. 
The Lookout Mountain Laboratory operated until at least 1969 and by many accounts much later than that, so throughout the influential years of the Laurel Canyon music scene. It remained utterly unknown to the public until the early 1990s when filmmaker Peter Curran learned of its existence through classified documents he obtained while researching his 1995 documentary, Trinity and Beyond. So there was a covert military installation in Laurel Canyon that seems to have been there to produce propaganda films for the US military and the intelligence community. So what? Well, according to one source, that facility produced over 19,000 films way more than the Hollywood studios would have made in that time. What films are they? Who's in them? What were they about? Who knows? The reason this is all important is because it makes a case for something more orchestrated and ambitious than the official and historical narrative. 19,000 films, huh? That's a lot of material. If you'd like more Renegade Files material, visit the Renegade Files Patreon page through the link in the show notes to help the show stay indie and ad-free. So we have learned of some of the deep military and intelligence backgrounds of the families of the original and influential Laurel Canyon bands, singer-songwriters, and actors who helped promote those bands by going to the clubs where they were playing. These bands were supposedly spreading powerful messages of anti-war, anti-establishment, and anti-government control to the wide-eyed masses across records and radio. They were viewed as a thorn in the side of traditional American values, as well as the organizations of law, order, and national defense. And yet none of these bands had members whose careers were ever interrupted by the draft, nor were any of them ever given more than a slap on the wrist for drug offenses, despite flagrant drug use and often drug trafficking and sales among the Laurel Canyon community. Laurel Canyon is basically one road, with one way in and out on each end and the armed forces draft was in full effect. If these bands really were the thorn in the side of the establishment that they were marketed as being, the establishment had plenty of legal ground to stand on to dissolve the whole entire thing. Block both ends of Laurel Canyon, one road, and sweep through to arrest anyone using or possessing drugs, then draft the rest, done. But that never happened. It isn't that these bands weren't good or even great, some of the Laurel Canyon songs are timeless classics, and deservedly so, so the bands may have been good bands. But the point is, so are a lot of bands. And this was in a time when nearly every kid wanted a guitar for Christmas. How many great bands never made it anywhere, despite skilled musicians and powerful lyrics? And how is it that such an overwhelming percentage, essentially all, of the groundbreaking bands in that scene that did make it to become the voices of the anti-war counterculture generation came from backgrounds of military intelligence and deep state blue blood families? And this brings up a good point. Were there any bands from this era whose members did not come from a deeply connected government intelligence background? Were there any bands who actually did pay their dues and come up in an organic way to build an audience and earn their chops through hard work and persistence? Well, there's one, Credence Clearwater Revival, or CCR. They were a California band whose members grew up together and had bands with their friends from young adulthood throughout their entire lives. John and Tom Fogarty's father worked for the Berkeley Gazette newspaper and their mother was a schoolteacher. Stu Cook and Doug Clifford also grew up in El Cerrito with the Fogartys. So what did CCR have to say about this situation? 
we might get a pretty blatant clue in the lyrics of their song Fortunate Son, which in part say, Some folks are born to wave the flag, they're red, white, and blue, and when the band plays hail to the chief, they point the cannon at you. It ain't me, I ain't no senator's son. It ain't me, I ain't no fortunate one. And I'll spare you the rest, and we all know the song, but it does go on to say, I ain't no millionaire's son, and I ain't no military son. And as I said before, I couldn't find a single Laurel Canyon musician who had their musical career interrupted by the draft. But in 1966, John Fogarty and Doug Clifford of CCR were both drafted into the armed forces. Let's look at some other lyrics of the movement. The song San Francisco, written by John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas and sung by Scott McKenzie became a huge hit and by all accounts was responsible for drawing scores of young people to San Francisco in the late 60s. The song's most memorable lyrics are, If you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. Scott McKenzie's father worked for the federal government's Rural Rehabilitation Administration, and Scott first met John Phillips when they were kids in Alexandria, Virginia, where their parents were friends. There are 10 military bases within 15 miles of Alexandria, Virginia, and we've already gone over the deep military intelligence history of the John Phillips family. And these two kids, friends from childhood, and both with parents in the federal government and military, grew up to make the anthem of the Summer of Love that was responsible for drawing, by some estimations, thousands of young girls and guys to San Francisco at the height of the war in Vietnam. And this is just one such serendipitous development. And so, in addition to these military intelligence-connected kids that all showed up in one rural neighborhood outside of LA to make the biggest rock bands in history, the song, San Francisco, simultaneously draws tons of young people to the Bay Area to live the hippie lifestyle. Jim Morrison and The Doors may allude to this difference between the insiders and the lost runaway hopefuls in the song LA Woman when he says, Are you a lucky little lady in the city of lights, or just another lost angel? Interestingly enough, it could be said that in this same song, Morrison outlines everything Dave McGowan asserts about the Laurel Canyon conspiracy when he sings at the song's beginning, Well, I just got into town about an hour ago. And then at the end, he says, Motel money, murder, madness. Let's change the mood from glad to sadness. Rock lyric interpretation aside, all of this brings up a good question that I'm not sure anyone has ever asked or really dove into. Were there any musicians toiling away at their craft in Laurel Canyon who did not get record deals and vast radio airplay and go on to become big stars of the counterculture? Because if there weren't any such hopefuls and every single band along that one street did become famous, then it casts yet another layer of suspicion on the whole thing. There were a lot of musicians moving around in the scene, and some of them were in bands that split to form other bands, and those bands went on to great success while the previous bands didn't, but that's not what I mean. I'm talking about someone who, try as they might, could never get a break. Isn't that a pretty common story in the world of music? And I bet you might even know of a good band that just never got their due, but were more talented than others who did. Search as I might, I could only find one singer-songwriter who tried and failed in the Laurel Canyon scene. Neil Young said, of this one failed musician, quote, He was great. He was unreal. Really, really good. He had this kind of music that nobody else was doing. I thought he really had something crazy. Something great. He was like a living poet. 
That's pretty high praise coming from Neil Young. Can you guess who he was talking about? Charlie Manson. And there's also the story of Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys letting Charlie Manson move into his house over a summer and going on to steal one of Manson's songs, a stunt that caused Manson to leave bullets in Wilson's bed as a threat after finding out that Wilson had renamed the song and given himself credit for writing it. But after reading about it, I think that Dennis Wilson's inviting Manson to stay at his house had far more to do with the harem of girls Manson had in tow than it did with Manson himself. And we know why Charlie Manson never went on to become a folk singer hero. He went on to do other things. As a side note, Manson never actually killed anyone himself. He was a criminal from an early age and spent a full 50% of his life behind bars before the 1969 murders he instigated. And he was just one more character in the Laurel Canyon scene of peace, love, and understanding. And an equally important question is this. If that happened today, would Neil Young and Dennis Wilson be cancelled? deplatformed and excommunicated from the entertainment industry for previously praising a psychopath who turned out to organize the murders of seven innocent people in order to start a race war? Think of the great things Neil Young and the Beach Boys went on to do. How many great things will our current cancel culture rob from our future because of some indiscretion or admitted mistake in someone's past? Part 2. Manufacturing the Hippies just like the emerging music from Laurel Canyon, the hippie movement was reported to be a grassroots movement of young people fed up with the warlike ways of the establishment. It's important to understand that before there were any hippies to speak of, there was a growing opposition to military action in Southeast Asia. This opposition was being championed by many conservative college professors and their students as well as writers, journalists, and professionals across all disciplines. And how could those intent on escalating the war in Vietnam control that growing and increasingly vocal opposition? One clue might be found in a quote from Vladimir Lenin. The best way to control the opposition is to lead it ourselves. In its simple and most obvious form, the creation of the hippies and the hippie aesthetic put a disagreeable face on the anti-war proponents. Disagreeable, that is, in broad terms to middle America and counterculture heroes of the day who were fully anti-war were actually opposed to and at least indifferent to the pageantry of hippies marching in the streets with their long hair and flowers. Writer Ken Kesey shocked the crowds marching at Berkeley in his address when he said, quote, You're not going to stop this war with this rally. By marching. They've been having wars for 10,000 years and you're not going to stop it this way. Of the audience at Woodstock, Jim Morrison himself said, the audience there was, quote, not what they pretended to be, some free celebration of a young culture. And specifically regarding the hippies, Morrison said, quote, the hippie lifestyle is really a middle-class phenomenon and it could not exist in any society except ours where there is this incredible surfeit of goods, products, and leisure time. The hippies were largely the creation of a very colorful and strange character named Vito Palikas and his wife Sue, who together ran a combination dance school, pottery studio, clothing store on Beverly Boulevard. This studio was the first rehearsal space for the band The Birds, who had the first breakout counterculture album from Laurel Canyon. Vito, his wife, and his friend Carl Franzoni commanded a troupe of about 35 young girls and a few guys 
and together they called themselves the Freaks. The Freaks would dress in crazy, colorful, theatrical clothes from Sue Palikas's clothing boutique, much of it left over from old movie productions in Hollywood. They learned undulating, sexualized dance routines in Vito's dance studio. Then they would take their show on the road to dance, drink, party, and consume massive amounts of LSD and other drugs. This spectacle was, as much as the Young Turks movie stars, responsible for drawing crowds to the clubs where the Laurel Canyon bands played. It was their wildly costumed, drug-fueled, free-love, party-without-a-care, long-hair, weed-smoking lifestyle that became the template for the American hippie. And those serious, academic intellectuals who had been protesting the wars in TV interviews soon found their voices overrun by the idealistic, socialist ramblings of any hippie who would stand still long enough for a TV reporter to interview them. All of this was fueled by the astounding record sales and concert tours of the Laurel Canyon musicians. The imagery of the scene swept the country and I am quite sure that many of the resulting people who may look fondly back on their hippie days absolutely believed in what they were doing and in many cases accomplished good in the world. And I would even go so far as to say, and this is just my opinion, that what started out as a way to control the opposition to the war and put an offensive face on the anti-war critique and thereby sabotage any serious alternatives by deliberately aligning the hippies with the anti-war arguments may have backfired. And that the image of freedom, love, peace, and understanding gained actual ground and appealed to the American 1960s youth in a way that spread like real wildfire across the nation. There are hundreds of tributaries to this story, like the suspicious death of Vito and Sue Palikas' young son, Godo, and his involvement with filmmaker Kenneth Anger, who had picked this three-year-old boy to play the part of Lucifer in Anger's film Lucifer Rising. The boy died under very suspicious circumstances, either by falling through a skylight, or by falling from a scaffolding, or from medical malpractice at the hospital after some filming accident. All of these accounts are given as causes for the boy's death, and his parents, at the time of whatever happened to kill the young boy, called their lawyer before they called the ambulance. And after this tragedy, Kenneth Anger was now forced to recast the role of Lucifer in his Satan movie, so he chose Bobby Beausoleil. Beausoleil was a Manson family member who would go on to be sentenced to death in California for killing Gary Hinman in one of the Manson family murders. Beausoleil's death sentence was later overturned, and while he remained in prison, he formed a band with some other inmates and they produced the soundtrack for the Lucifer Rising film. <laughs> you just can't make this stuff up. And this leads us to the final section of this tale. Any good conspiracy has a trail of bodies behind it and the Laurel Canyon conspiracy is no different. Part 3. Death Canyon a shocking amount of violent deaths, apparent suicides, and suspicious ends weave their way through the Laurel Canyon scene of those days. An amazing array of deaths either occurred in Laurel Canyon or to people closely connected to the scene, and the numbers far exceed what you would think of as an average amount for that given time. I'm not going to go into all the details or even mention every one, but here's the basic list of suspicious or violent deaths that happened. Marina Habe, 17, found dead in Laurel Canyon in 1968, whose father was Hans Habe, 
He studied psychological warfare at the Military Intelligence Training Center and published 18 different newspapers in occupied Germany. Christine Hinton, daughter of an army officer stationed at the Presidio, and David Crosby's girlfriend died in a car accident in 1969. A never-identified teenage girl found in the same area as the aforementioned Marina Habe. Alan Wilson, 27, of the Laurel Canyon band Canned Heat, another one of my favorite bands, died of what was said to be suicide in his Topanga home right after his Laurel Canyon home suspiciously burned to the ground. We know about Jim Morrison. Brandon DeWild, a young Turk actor, died in another car crash. Christine Fricka, a nanny in her 20s for Frank Zappa's daughter Moon Unit, died in 1972 of a supposed drug overdose. Danny Witten, guitarist for Neil Young's band Crazy Horse, died also of an overdose in 72. Bruce Barry, brother of Jan Barry of Jan and Dean, and a roadie for Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, died also drug overdose, 1973. Clarence White, guitarist for The Birds and who had immediate family employed at Edwards Air Force Base, was killed by a car while he was walking down the road in 1973. Graham Parsons overdosed in 73. Others from the scene who had untimely deaths? Mama Cass, Amy Gossage, Tim Buckley, Phyllis Brown, Bobby Fuller, Janis Joplin, Dwayne Allman, Barry Oakley, Phil Ox, and the unfortunate victims of the Manson family murders. Now yes, people die. It may be the one thing we all have in common. And a lot of those were drug overdoses, and that does seem fitting for the time and place. But it seems like a high number of Laurel Canyon insiders met with untimely or at least tragic fates. I'm not sure if it means anything, but it does add more strangeness to an already strange situation. My conclusion and summary. And now I'll give you my conclusions about this incredible theory that fully turns the entire period of history upside down as far as the traditional narratives go. Thank you so much for listening to Renegade Files. Our shows are always free and ad-free, so you can help us stay that way by donating a few bucks on Patreon in exchange for even more Renegade Files content, like behind-the-scenes videos, bonus episodes, dark Intel Files research, and more. You can also support the show by visiting our merchandise shop and getting cool Renegade Files gear. All of these links are in the show notes and are easy to find at our website, therenegadefiles.com, also in the show notes groovy. So after hearing all of this, where do we land? Whatever you or I think about this, the songs we know and love are still there. Some of those songs are the best music our country has ever made. Many 60s Laurel Canyon bands are among my favorites. But it's healthy to look at things in a new way sometimes, and it's wise to not simply believe something because a huge media company tells you it's true. One way to look at the Laurel Canyon conspiracy is this. Imagine that you're a young man, and you have never before sang, played an instrument, or even really been interested in music, which is exactly how Jim Morrison described himself before coming to Laurel Canyon. And now, after being raised by a Navy Admiral, you find yourself leading a band that is about to become the biggest name in rock and roll. And, just a mile down the road from where you've moved to do this, Another guy, whose dad was a chemical warfare engineer, just formed a band that will be almost as big as yours. And that guy is married to a girl that left her job at the Office of Naval Research and Development to move into the same neighborhood. Oh, and you went to kindergarten with that girl when you were both kids on a Navy base. And the guy who manages that neighbor's band is a covert intelligence operative, and that manager's cousin also fronts a newly formed Laurel Canyon band on the verge of superstardom. 
and another band a few houses over from yours is led by a guy who attended military schools from the first grade through his acceptance to the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis. And within walking distance on the same road but in the other direction lives a guy, also starting a band, whose wife worked at the Pentagon before moving next door, is a descendant of President John Adams, and whose father is a military intelligence agent for the Air Force. And across the street from them is another guy, also starting a band, whose dad was an Annapolis Naval Academy graduate and a World War II intelligence officer. That aspiring musician lives in the carriage house above the garage behind a home where three other guys who just started a band also live, and each of those three guys' dads are all naval intelligence officers and one of them the commander of the base where they all met. And all of these bands will immediately form, sign record contracts, and receive non-stop FM radio airplay for the next 60 years and probably beyond. And they will be the faces and voices of the counterculture who are opposed to the war in Vietnam, the same war that the military-industrial machine populated by the rest of their families is simultaneously creating. As that person, do you think all of this is a coincidence? And I'm not saying that these bands weren't talented, but so are a lot of bands. Isn't it at least somewhat suspicious that such an overwhelming percentage of the counterculture anti-war bands who were promoted as that voice came from deep state military intelligence and blue blood political families? And it has been suggested that these young people were simply rebelling against their military and high-ranking government official family members. That might be the case with a few singers of the day, but these people all showed up to live in Laurel Canyon, all arrived within months of each other, and all lived within walking distance of a secret military-operated propaganda production facility that no one even knew existed until the 1990s. Today, we know that our pop stars are manufactured by the entertainment industry. The newest young singer who arrives out of the blue with 123 million Instagram followers, 40 million views on their first YouTube video, and starts showing up on Ellen and Jimmy Fallon, is an employee of Capitol Records or Columbia Records or Def Jam or whomever. Just like their albums, magazine covers, and TV interviews, their fame is created and promoted by professional project managers. If you think Lady Gaga makes a lot of money, how much money do you think Interscope Records and their parent company, Universal Music Group, makes? And when you hear that oft-repeated soundbite that such and such a pop star is an amazing business person, think about that for a second. That person is simply the icon, the logo as it were, at the top of a huge organization that includes music writers, producers, agents, graphic and fashion designers, marketers, writers, team leaders, managers, concert promoters, advertising agencies, corporate sponsors, distribution channels, media liaisons, production assistants, and on and on and on. Does it mean that Lady Gaga or Justin Bieber can't sing? No, they can, but a lot of people can sing. Those are just the people who have been selected from the many thousands who could have been to be the face at the front of the parade. Frank Zappa once said, politics is the entertainment division of the military industrial complex. Maybe entertainment 
is the entertainment division of the military industrial complex. Wow, what a blast. I'm so grateful to have you join me here and I can't wait to do it again next time. Be sure to follow Renegade Files wherever you listen so you can always be the first to catch the new episodes. If you like the show, give us a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps more listeners find us. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, saying peace, my friend. Stay wild, flower child. Thank you.